0: You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. The word this morning, 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Follow along with me. Paul says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, and slavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory, that God with wit be entrusted, and it's God's word. Let's pray, Father, uh, Father, as we uh, as we continue to study Your Word this morning, God, give us give us hearts that that would that would worship You in the midst of our study. And I just remember David saying in the Psalms, "Like my heart worships Your Word." As in your word, we find, uh, find the revelation of you and your, 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 your desires and your work and your love for us. So help us to worship you as we study your word. I hope that you would just come and do transformativeness this morning. Each, each one of us walks in with something different this morning, something we're trying to do differently, something we wish we would have never done what we need the most is to have the eyes of our hearts towards the goodness of Jesus at the cross and the empty tomb. Father, come do your work in us, I pray. And I pray you would even just, in this moment, even just come with the power of your Spirit, purify my motives, purify my heart, purify my words and my thoughts, Take on the task of preaching your word. God, let me not say anything that would be harmful to your flock and your bride. Let me speak as though you are here speaking to us. And do what I, I am unable to do, which is to take the truth of your word and the truth of the gospel and affect change in the hearts and lives. So, Father, we ask this together. Trust you to do it. In Jesus' name, what do you said? Amen, amen, amen. So one of the things that uh, causes my, uh, my heart to grieve is when I experience a brother or a sister making shipwreck of their faith. And the other thing at the same time that causes my heart to grieve is just this wrestle that happens inside of me. It's a fear, it's a concern. I think it's healthy fear or a concern that I too could make shipwreck of faith. Not one of us in this room that is immune to the threat of becoming a Judas to our Savior and His bride. Not one of us is immune to that threat. The newspaper headlines, social media posts, on the old interwebs. And there's, there's more than enough there. Um, there's more than enough warning regarding the danger of shipwrecking our faith. More than enough warning that that danger is real and that the damage that is left in the wake of so called proclaiming Christians gone rogue is devastating. That is saying not just on the entity of the church, it's devastating on individual people within church families. You don't have to do a ton of research on the internet to find uber-long lists of Christian leaders who have wandered from the faith, who have swerved away from sound doctrine, and have caused major damage to the body of Christ. And in fact, when I when I wrote this sermon this week and as I studied. The hardest part for me um, was just cutting out paragraph after paragraph that I had actually had in here just naming long lists of people, many of those names, people that we would recognize. And it doesn't matter what doctrinal bent you have, whether it's Reformed or Arminian or Baptist or Lutheran. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, the list of men and women who have become Judases to their Savior and His bride not not just one group of people with one theology everything from sexual scandal to financial mishandling to emotional abuse just flat out heresy it abounds in the american church today and i would say across the world bounding the question that i wrestle with often i know many of you do too how does this happen How does this person that I once knew as faithful to the Lord go from that one day to absolute shipwreck? Who do I trust? What do I trust? Right? How does that happen? How do Christians go from faithful and trustworthy to fallen and shipwrecked? Those stories, um, as I simmered in them this week, even as I just thought personally back to my own journey with the Lord, watching some of my closest friends over the years absolutely shipwreck their faith, walk away from the church, walk away from the Lord. even thinking through that, the pain and the hardship of that this week, just brings up emotion for me. make my heart feel sad, makes my heart feel angry, makes my heart feel sick. And here's the thing, like in the midst of that, isn't it? I mean, you might, it's easy to point the finger, isn't it? Someone hurts you, someone betrays you, someone betrays your family members. It's easy to point the finger. It's kind of what pain does to us. It causes such an inward destructiveness, That in our self-protection, we barricade ourselves by pointing the finger. Keep the spotlight off of me as I put the spotlight on you, right? No way the plank in my eye could be as big as the speck in yours. It's easy to point the finger at the fallen, While dismissing the reality that deep within every one of us lies at least, bare minimum, the capacity to commit the same kind of shipwrecking sin, none of us are immune to becoming a Judas, our Savior and his bride. It's heavy, isn't it? This is what Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. This passage should be on the screen for you. Paul warns the Ephesian elders in Acts twenty verses twenty-eight through thirty. He says he warns them to pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So, who made the elders overseers? The Holy Spirit. So that's an that's a really heavy weight. Why did he make them overseers? To care for the church of God. Why? Well, he moves on. He says, which he obtained with his blood. That's a very serious thing Paul says to the Ephesian elders. Keep a close watch on yourself. Keep a close watch on the flock. The Holy Spirit's made you overseers, and he's made you overseers to take care of his flock. doesn't belong to you, Right? Belongs to the Lord. How does it belong to the Lord? Because He obtained it through the shed blood of His Son. Now, He's saying all this. He says, because I know. That's an interesting phrase. I know that after my departure, after I leave you today, fierce wolves, fierce wolves, not just looky cats, right? Because He didn't say lions anyway, so I'm in the same breed. So, you can laugh with me, it's okay. Straight. It's not even like little pet dogs. Fierce wolves, right? Picture something really, really scary. Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And then listen to this. And from your own selves will arise men. From within will arise men. Speaking twisted things to what? Draw away the disciples after them. Now, i be honest. uh, Over the years of ministry for me, these passages... On the, 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 the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd, Timothy, and Titus. And then this passage alone had become like intrinsically woven into my psyche. So, lots of reasons. So the Apostle Paul spoke these words, the words in Acts. He spoke those words in person with tears to the Ephesian elders on a beach, okay? right before he left them. He spoke these words, honestly, by most accounts, just about four years before he wrote this letter to 1 Timothy. So think about that. Four years before we receive this letter and start studying it, the Apostle Paul is with us in person, in tears, and he's warning us, watch out. From within you, fierce wolves will arise and try to destroy the work of God in you. That's four years ago. 48 months ago. Where were you? 48 months ago. What, were you following Christ 48 months ago? And what was the message that God was preaching to you then? Did you heed that message 48 months ago? Because the Ephesians did not. Four years ago, Paul was with them, in person, face to face, warning them, be careful. And then, a few years later, most likely two years later, we would have received another letter. That letter would have been called the book of Ephesians, which we studied recently. It goes from a face-to-face warning to the book of Ephesians, sit, walk, stand, about two years ago. And now, four years after the warning, roughly two years after the book of Ephesians, he writes another letter. And he doesn't, doesn't start out nice and sweet. starts out swinging. What does, that tell you? What, does that, what does that tell you about how concerned Paul was for Timothy in the Ephesian church? Face-to-face meeting in two letters in the span of four years. In a time when you didn't do email, you didn't do text messaging, you certainly didn't do Facebook. I don't, I don't think Paul necessarily had any clue who the wolves would be when he first warned the Ephesian elders about them face-to-face. But but I have no doubt that that when Paul sat down to write this letter, 1 Timothy, I have no doubt that his heart was grieved. I have no doubt that his heart was sad. I have no doubt that his heart was sickened by what he saw taking place. To know that some of the very same leaders that he had warned face-to-face in tears, sternly, on the beach of Ephesus, were now the ones he was writing about. I think think his heart was sick by this. These leaders that he's writing about, these false teachers that he's writing about, that he's warning Timothy and the church about, he's telling them, don't tolerate that. We don't tolerate that because, oh, we want to give everybody the opportunity to talk. We don't tolerate false teaching, he says. They were teaching false doctrine. And I think, in in my own little way of explaining it, these guys were getting to the point where they were plastered all across the front pages of the newspapers, bringing shame to the name of Christ instead of the glory that is due to them. How does that happen? How does that happen? Like just, if you would just take a minute, even if you don't know the person next to you, would you just look at that person for a minute? Would you just think about what that's like if that person next to you, that's looking at you, that you're looking at, shipwrecks their faith tomorrow, becomes an abuser of God's bride, an abuser of God's glory. What if that was you? Would you take this warning to heart? Would you think about how this could happen to you? I was reading a book with uh, my wife over the last few weeks. We're in chapter four or five recently. And one of the phrases that stuck with me is that um, humility equals self-suspicion and integrity equals self-inspection. And here's what happens. When you and I get hurt, by people who should have and could have done better by us, uh, the, the immediate response for us is not to become self-suspicious. It's to become others suspicious to protect ourselves. And it's to become others inspecting rather than self-inspecting to protect ourselves. We've been gone through too much pain, so it's too painful to inspect our own hearts, to examine our own hearts. So humility... Equals self-suspicion. When someone hurts me, it's hard work to say, you know what, I need to just be suspicious of what's going on inside of my heart right now. Not let a root of bitterness sink in or a root of sin. I need to self-inspect what's happening inside my soul right now. I think Paul is concerned Uh, with how to protect yourself from not only the influence of these kinds of wolves that we see in this passage, but I think he's also concerned with how we could protect ourselves from becoming those wolves, from becoming a Judas to the bride of Christ. And so I think his words in 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11, do teach us some things. And you might remember the four categories that we built out last week from the previous verses, um, which we'll touch on again here a few times today. Um, Right? I think he's trying to teach us something about how to walk in authentic love because this is something that those false teachers lacked. They didn't have authentic love. It was false love. Fake love. It was a dead corpse dressed up with lipstick. That's what those guys were. Dead corpses dressed up with lipstick. They didn't have authentic love. They didn't have pure hearts. Their, their hearts were filthy. Paul wants us to understand the aim the motivation behind what he's saying, authentic love, pure heart, clean conscience, unshakable faith. A faith that is preserved until the end, not one that gets shipwrecked. And that's what those false teachers lacked. They lacked all four of those categories. And the first protective thing that I see Paul saying to Timothy is simple. And it's this. The law is good. The law it's good. And that's what, one of the things we need to see is that the law of God is good. Now, some of you, if you've been in church for longer than 15 minutes of your life, um, you've maybe heard things like um, like maybe that the, the, the law um, is not good. So, If you would hang with me for a little bit, I think we need to ask the question, if the law is good, then what's it good for? Um, I'm I'm of the, I think, the theological persuasion that the law is good for three things. There's not just a single use of the law. I think there's three uses of the law that are very important. Number one, the law restrains rampant chaos, right? It restrains sinners. It restrains evildoers. A second, uh, the law condemns sinners, condemns evildoers, convicts them. So it restrains them and it shows them you're wrong, right? And then third of all, I think the law helps us to walk right. The law is what teaches us what's right. This is the right way to walk. I love describing the law like um, guardrail, street signs on highways. That's the way I like to describe the law. Guardrails and street signs on highways, they, they keep us safe when we're driving, uh, they reveal when we're driving recklessly, and they teach us how to drive rightly. Paul says that the law is good. But here's the thing, he also says the law is not good in the hands of someone who uses it to abuse others. It's not good in the hands of someone who uses it to justify their sinful desires. That's exactly what was happening in Ephesus, self-appointed Leaders were using the law of Moses to draw away people, to draw people away from the plain teaching of the gospel, the, the plain application of the gospel, the plain study of the gospel, trying to draw them away into extra-biblical literature. Today it would look like, hey guys, let's go study the, the Apocrypha. Let's go study the book of Enoch. Let's go study the lost gospels, right? Or, or let's just shift our focus away from a theology of of the gospel where I, I, I am shown to be a sinner and God is shown to be my savior and then that needs to regularly apply to my sin so I become more radically conformed into the image of Christ. Let, let's stop preaching that message. Let's now start preaching a message of health, wealth, and prosperity. There's no reason to talk about sin. Let's just talk about how God loves you. Like who gives a rip if God's love, God loves you if you're not a sinner? Why would you need God's love, right? Like now you can just approach God like a genie in a bottle and be like, just give me whatever I wanted. I want health, I want wealth, and I want prosperity. So we sacrifice the gospel in all sorts of ways. Those are just some of my favorite soapboxes. Yeah, that's, what, that's the word of soapbox. So here's what Paul says to Timothy in the midst of that, right? Go back to verses 8 through 10. I <laughs> man, the law is good if one uses it rightfully, lawfully. Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just. And the law is not for the just. The law isn't for those of us that got it together. The law is not given to us for the lawful or the obedient. It's not given to us for the righteous. Jesus said, I didn't come to hang out with those who aren't sick. I came to be the Messiah of those who are sick, right? Jesus said that. The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless. It's laid down for the disobedient. It's laid down for the ungodly. Laid down for the sinners. Laid down for the unholy. It's, it's, it's given to us as a provision for the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral. Men who practice homosexuality need this. And slavers need this. Liars. People who are perjurers need the law. Whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Love the junk door. See, when Paul makes this list, when you look at this list of sins, here's, here's what we do. Once you become a Christian, we love to pick our peeves about that list, right? Oh, we really want to get on the, the, like the gravy train of the homosexuality debate right now, right? Like just ignoring the fact that I probably biffed it on every other one of those other than that one. Because I don't have those leanings. Right? You need to be very careful what we turn into is people in our pain pointing the finger at other people because they're sinners. And we take one thing out of the text and we make that the big thing about who we are. I know guys who have tried to make war against some of these things and have done it really poorly. This is clearly a list of sinful things. Let's just guard and protect ourselves about making one of those things the most important thing. But as he makes this list, let me draw your attention to this. What he's doing, what Paul's doing is he's actually taking the commandments, the Ten Commandments, and he's taking commandments number five through number nine, and he's using them as an illustration for what he's trying to say. And as he's doing it, what he's doing is is, is, is he's pushing out those laws, five through nine, and he's basically taking them out to their most logical, extreme ends. Okay? Okay. So, so for instance, I'm just going to touch on two for the sake of time. Um, He's not just drawing our attention to people who dishonor their fathers and mothers because the law says, honor your father and your mother, right? So, the law says it in in a positive way. Um, He doesn't just draw attention to that. He says it in a negative way. And he draws out to its most extreme end. Drawing attention to the extreme ways in which we do dishonor our fathers and mothers. By physically abusing them, because that physical abuse would be dishonoring your parents, right? That's all Paul is doing, he's taking it out to its extreme end. Paul loves to do this in his writings. Uh, second example, he doesn't just draw attention to people who struggle with lust or adultery. He could have just used those words and moved on, but he didn't. He actually describes some of the most extreme ways that lust and adultery manifest itself through immorality and homosexuality. The, the Greek language he uses there is explicit. There's no ignoring it, and there's no getting around it. After he works through his list of sins that actually break the commandments of God, and therefore in the midst of that, the heart of God. Because if God lays these laws down for our good, right? To keep us safe, to teach us how to walk right, to teach us how to love one another and love him, if that's, if that's why they're there, then when we break them, we, we break the heart of God. On the end of that, Paul does such a good job. He, he does this twice. He does it here, but he also does it in Galatians. He tacks on this uh, whatever else, junk drawer. It's the, okay, and if this list, this extreme list of sins isn't enough for you, anything else that fits in the drawer, because we are sinful and we love to create new ways of sinning if there is such a thing. Okay, if there is such a thing. It's just a junk drawer. Anything else that's contrary to sound doctrine. And in, in the literal Greek, um, what he's basically saying is uh, anything that is contrary to teaching that promotes spiritual health. That's what he's saying. It's whatever else is contrary to healthy teaching. Teaching that promotes health in us. That's interesting. When wolves come in, what wolves go after is the weakest in the flock, don't they? And when wolves come in, I'll When they come in, wolves typically come in as the most wounded in the flock. Something for us to pay attention to. When I think of spiritual health, um, I think of the four categories that Paul built for us in verse 5 when he says that the aim of our charge is love, authentic love, that issues from a pure heart, purity of heart, and a good conscience clean conscience, and a sincere faith. This is a firm, immovable, persevering faith. By swerving away from a focus on developing those character traits, let's think about that. By swerving from a focus on developing those character traits, you had once upon a time, quote-unquote, so-called Christian leaders in the Ephesian church that were now wandering away from the faith on the back roads of worthless discussions that promote spiritual sickness rather than spiritual health. The law is good. The law is good in the right hands because it's meant for everyone who is sick with the infection of lawlessness or sick with the infection of disobedience or sick with the infection of ungodliness or sick with the infection of sin. Can I just ask you? Is there anybody in this room this morning who isn't infected with one of those? Have you walked in thinking that you're not sick with one of those? I pray the Holy Spirit would confront your heart now. Law is good in the right hands because here's the thing in the right hands, the heart is taught by the law. How to love authentically, how to stay pure, how to stay clean, how to remain steadfast in the faith. Now, uh, time only permits me a certain amount, so you could nuance the words that I'm saying in the how-to and track with me for a little bit, because I'll just give you a, so that you're not jumping off the train yet. The law alone is bad. The law alone has no power. The law is good. Keep that in your head. It does teach you how, but on its own, it's worthless, powerlessness, power, power. Teach you anything. So, so this is why I love what David says. Psalm one nineteen, verses nine through sixteen should be on the screen for you. My favorite passages of all times. And just count, count words uh, as you work through this. Count the words that end for God's. Words like precepts, words like commandments, words like rules, words like statutes, did I say precepts already? Words like testimonies. Here's what he says, how can a young man keep his way pure? Well, that seems to connect with the four things that Paul has in mind, his aim. Remember, a, a, a pure conscience, clean conscience, a pure heart. So how can a, how can a young man keep his way Pure. How do we keep our hearts pure? And he says, by guarding it according to your word. So God's word actually protects and guards our hearts. God's laws actually protect and guard our hearts because God's word is God's law. He says, um, with my whole heart, I seek you. And let me not wander. Catch that? Wander. Same theme over here in 1 Timothy. I Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. Anybody here like rules? No, man, we're Americans. are rule breakers. Right? We, we war against the machine. <laughs> Actually, there was a band called Rage Against the Machine. That was back in the old days. My old days. I'm not that old. Anyways, (laughs) back to David. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Catch that. This is David's heart. This is David's heart. In the way of your testimony, rules, statutes, laws, commands, in all of those things, I delight. My heart leaps with affection. I want to. How much? How much, David? How much do you really want to follow God's laws? How much? Tell me. And as much as my heart would delight in having all riches. All of the riches from the beginning of time to the beginning of now. I don't know what it is that you want. I had this conversation in GC this last week. I don't know what it is that makes your heart come alive whether it's that brand new show that's coming on, on TV that you've been waiting for for a long time, or maybe it's that relationship that Joy's wanted to get into, or maybe it's the brand new truck that Joy's wanted, or maybe it's the pay increase that you've been looking for for a long time, or maybe it's the new baby, right? I don't know what it is that would cause your heart to leap and go, oh, yeah! That's David's heart for the law of God. Wow! my prayer for us, is that the kind of love that David had for the law of God, that that would be the kind of love that you and I would have for the law of God. And I, I pray this, why? I pray this because every one of us in this room hearing this message faces the threat of becoming a Judas to our Savior and His bride. Which brings me to this the thing that Paul says He says, hey, the law is good. And the second thing that Paul says is the law agrees with the gospel. The law agrees with the gospel. And we need to see this. You might ask that question, how does the law agree with the gospel? Once again, if you've been in church gatherings for longer than 15 minutes, you've probably heard something along the lines, someone preaching that the law is actually contrary to the gospel. At least by way of implication. That somehow, since we now have the gospel, we're free. We no longer need the law. I would just say that that's a real uh, misreading of the book of Galatians. It really is. That kind of teaching is heresy. It's heretical. Not to be tolerated. But we tolerate it all the time. In churches today. Oftentimes it's because we're, we're fearful of moralism and legalism. And because of that fear, because of the pain that's been um, done to the church and to us through moralism and legalism, if you know what those are, um, we kind of reject anything that like seems like it comes anywhere close. Paul doesn't seem to do that. To teach that kind of teaching that somehow because we now have the gospel, we no longer need the law. Um... It's actually not right distortion of both the law and the gospel. Now, I will add one small caveat. We don't have time to go a long ways into it. Um, there are different sections of law. The law we're talking about today is the law of Moses, which regards moral behavior. There are ceremonial laws. I'll just stop. There are other categories of laws. And there are some that really don't apply to us, at least in the sense that we need to go, like, sacrifice sheep tomorrow and worship on Saturdays instead of Sundays and those kinds of things and Christmas trees are a sin and whatever, right? Okay, those kinds of laws, I can get on a tangent real quick here. Festivals, like celebrating the festivals. Like there's a reason all those things were in place ceremonially and it was to point to Jesus. But when it comes to the moral law that we're talking about here, it agrees with the gospel. The law, again, is good for protection. It's good for condemnation. And it's good for sanctification. Now, this means that the law helps us to live in safety. It convicts us when we're living sinfully. It helps us to know how to live rightly. But here's the thing, I said this earlier, say it again. Left to itself, the law is absolutely worthless. It's absolutely powerless because the law is only as good as the gospel it agrees with. It's only as good as the gospel it agrees with. And if your gospel is, I just need to do better, then your, your gospel is worthless. Because what you're pairing the law with is something you can't do. So pay attention to what actual gospel message you trust in. I, I hear people say, man, my, my marriage was a wreck, so I just thought I need to go to church. You think going to church is going to heal your marriage? Come on. Only the gospel is going to heal your marriage. Church is a byproduct of that. I'm not trying to be a jerk by saying I'm just I'm passionate because I don't want us to get off on that. It's important for us to know what actually heals us, what actually transforms us, and it's the message of the gospel. And as soon as you think you arrived in heaven yet, you haven't arrived. got dudes in our community that preach that you could somehow reach a st- of sinless perfection before going to heaven. What? Really? I don't even want to go to that church because I'm going to jack it up when I get there. Okay. There's not much when it comes to sin anymore that actually surprises me. I feel long. and longer. Inspect sin and inspect the glory of the goodness of Christ in the midst of that. It's not that sin would even surprise you anymore, it's that you would be so surprised by the fact that Jesus actually loves you. Like that's what should surprise us and bring us into an awe of Him, right? I gotta move, I gotta move forward. Law is good, it's only as good as the gospel agrees with. That's reckless. This is why Paul says. The law is good, right? In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. In other words, the law is only good along with the gospel, and, and the gospel is only good along with the law. It is the law that teaches us like a school teacher, it is the law that warns us like a police officer, and it's the law that judges us rightly as criminals. Three uses of the law a teacher, a police officer, and a judge. But, the law is absolutely powerless outside of those things. The law is powerless to save us. Your desire to do the law ain't gonna save you. You and I cannot earn our right standing with God through obedience to that law, because here's what happens, every time I've like I wanna do what's right here, I wanna love my wife, I wanna love my kids, I wanna give more, I wanna serve more. Great, want to, why? Just because you want to, just because it's a good thing to do? Failed already. Motivation off already. Even if you do it just because you want to do it, your motivation is wrong. Therefore, the act that you're going to do is still filled with sin. So, guess what? You and I need Jesus. Every time we sin, what happens is we wind up back in the the, 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 the judge's courtroom. And back in the judge's room, you've got the teacher standing there saying, Hey, I told you. And then you got the police officer standing there going, hey, I warned you. And then you got the judge going, hey, you are guilty. Sentenced to death because the wages of sin is death. And this this is where the in accordance with the gospel part steps into the courtroom. And it's such a beautiful message. In accordance with the gospel steps into the courtroom and sets us free even though we deserve the maximum penalty for our law-breaking behavior. What happens is the gospel enters into the courtroom in the form of an innocent man named Jesus and a loving father named God and a defending attorney named the Holy Spirit. The defending attorney, the Holy Spirit, walks into the courtroom. He's our advocate. He stands up for us against the bully of the law walks up to the judge's bench, and he says, hey, my client, my client, he has not only had his fines for his criminal behavior paid, but the innocence of this man over here, Jesus, his innocence has been placed on this man. And this man's guilt has been placed on this innocent man free. He's guilty no longer. Not just that his fines were paid so he can go back and break the law again. He's no longer guilty. Washed clean. And all that drama in the courtroom happens as a result of what we saying about today. How high wide. How deep is your love? Soul on fire. You're so on fire this morning because of the wondrous love of your father. Because he was standing in that courtroom and everything, all of that drama happened in that courtroom because your father loved you that deeply. And his arms are outstretched towards you at the end of that driveway, receiving you back to him. See, the law protects and it convicts and it teaches, but it's absolutely worthless without the good news of the gospel that i just explained to you. The good news of the gospel is not just for that day when you start following Jesus. The good news of the gospel is not just for baby Christians. The good news of the gospel is for 50 and 60 and 70 year old veterans in Christianity who are bored. It's for all of us. Paul to the Galatians saying, I cannot believe that you'd walk away from that message. How, How could you walk away from the passion of that message so quickly? He says to the Galatians. When the law is taught, it must be taught in light of the gospel. When the gospel is proclaimed, it can only be proclaimed as good news in light of the bad news of the law. So the law is good, and the law agrees with the gospel, and in the gospel we find the power of salvation over the penalty of sin, the presence of sin, and the power of sin in what? The work of Jesus at the cross in the empty tomb. So, as I bring us to conclusion, I want to bring us back to the application of this passage. Like, false teachers are ravaging the hearts of the flock in Ephesus. You remember that? But if we look at John, look at John's tongue lashing, go to Revelation sometime, Revelation chapter 2, now, you'll find that the Ephesian, Ephesian church again, John gives them an absolute tongue lashing. You guys have done a good thing and all these other things, but I have one thing against you. Remember that? Be good to read it. The Ephesians had learned to love Dr. truth after all these encounters with Apostle Paul and his teachings. I mean, you think about this, man. You had like pure apostolic preaching happening in your midst and you still turned away from it? What kind of a threat is this for us? Because I'm no apostle. I'm not Paul. The Holy Spirit is still the Holy Spirit. God is still God. The Father is still the Father. But I mean, just think about that. If we had the Apostle Paul standing in our midst, we might be tempted to think, man, if he was standing here preaching to us, how could I? I would never turn. Go back to that long list of dudes on the internet that lost it right now. That that grieved my heart. would, Would they have never gone down those roads if Paul was standing there? Probably. Sin is destructive. John, Revelation 2. It gives them a ton lashing, man. The Ephesians learned to love doctrinal truth, if that statement's even true. Learned to love doctrinal truth, but somehow lost their love for Christ. I have no idea how you could love actual true gospel truth, doctrinal truth, without loving Christ at the end of it. So I get that the statement is there. They love doctrine more than they love Jesus at some point. I just don't know how that happened other than sin. I want to guard us and protect us. And Paul is warning us and God's warning us through this and wants to protect us as well, right? And Paul's simple, straightforward instruction is really this one line, right? <laughs> how a guy gets in a pulpit and preaches for 35 or 40 minutes on one line because this is really the big idea of the whole passage, right? The idea is that the law is good if it agrees with the gospel. The law is good if it agrees with the gospel. I don't know what your experience with the law has been like. I don't know how well you can explain the gospel, I don't know uh, where your heart is at this morning. I don't know what you walked in here with. I do want to leave you with a few application questions um, and then a final encouragement before we conclude. Um, in regards to the law, um, I've said this a few times. I'm just thinking of the Ten Commandments um, in Deuteronomy 5 and then the greatest commandment in Deuteronomy 6, um, which you'll find recounted again in the New Testament if you do your study. Um, and then I'm thinking of those as far as the law. And then, I'm, and then I'm thinking about our ability to articulate the gospel as I look at the Apostle Paul in First Corinthians 15 and Romans 8, which was so providential that Andrew read Romans 8 because he had no clue because we didn't get a chance to meet this morning because car broke down. So um, the fact that he read Romans 8 after that being a piece of this is really providential for us. I think questions five questions should be on the screen for you. They'll be in your gospel community guides this week too. How have you experienced the law restraining your desire to sin lately? How have you experienced that? Just restraining you, just stopping you like, oh, the law says no, so I won't. Speed limit sign says 55, so I'm not going to go 65, right? How have you experienced the law restraining your desire to sin? I shouldn't look at that woman that way because that's lust. So I'm not going to, right? How have you experienced the law restraining your desire to sin? Number two, what kinds of sin have you been convicted of lately? Right? just totally bypass the restraint piece and we're like, crap, I drove 65 instead of 65. Ah! I didn't bounce the eyes. Christian lingo. You guys get this right? Yep. Too much confession? Number three, in what ways does the great commandment teach you to overcome your sin? What's the great commandment? One word, somebody tell me. What's the great commandment? One word, somebody tell me. Love. Yep, thank you. How has the great commandment to love the Lord your God taught you, helped you to overcome sin? Number four, how, how do you explain the gospel? Number five, how does it help you differently than you did before? My, question, my hope is that you would wrestle with those questions this week in gospel community, but I also want to model just real quickly, wrap this up, what that might look like. Um, I won't be in gospel community this week because I leave after a congregational meeting today for a meeting for four days in Minnesota, so you can actually pray for me as I have them pray for my family as I'm away and they're there alone, and my wife as she shoulders the load of, of uh, being a, a single parent for four days. I pray for them for that. Um. So I just want to model this for you. Like, here, here's... here's I would apply these questions. Um, like, I, in the last week, I, I've just experienced, like, the law. any of my desire to be lazy. I go home after a long day of work and I just want to veg up on the TV right I'm tired. I don't want to deal with anything. Check out. And I've been convicted that that desire to be lazy, then it actually affects my family, right? And it actually brings dishonor to the Lord. Why? Because... God actually calls us to work hard for His glory. So the law, then at the same time, so now it's, it's restraining me and it's convicting me. Now it's also teaching me that I am not loving the Lord. I'm not loving my family when I'm lazy and checked out, right? So it teaches me all those things. So I'm restrained, convicted, and taught through the law, those three purposes, those three uses of the law. And now that I know God's standard... God's bar where He sets it, now that I know those things, then what's going to happen? I will always fall short. Always fall short. Without anything else added to it, life is purely hopeless. It's just hopeless. I'll never succeed, I'll never get any better. Well, that's where the agreement with the gospel part comes in, gives me great hope. Changes my desires, sets my feet firm path. Because here's the thing: Jesus was never lazy. Even when he went to the cross for me, there was any time I want to get lazy. It's probably when people were abusing me, and abusing people that I love. It's probably when I kind of want to check out a little bit, right, and go hide. Not Jesus. For the joy that was set before him, he went and endured the cross on behalf of lazy sinners like me, never left me, never ignored me, even when I was at my worst. On top of that, like I said, he went to the cross to pay the price for my sin. And he left the tomb empty, and then he walks into that courtroom where I'm standing with my head hung in shame and guilt. And he assumes my guilt, and he gives me his innocence, and he walks out of that courtroom with me, completely free. No longer in bondage. No longer guilty. No longer ashamed. No longer bound by the, by the law. Now set free by the gospel. And what happens? At that point now, I'm motivated differently. Not to keep the law, just to be a good person. Not to keep the law, just to keep the law. Now I'm motivated to keep the law. By engaging my family. Why? Because it's an act of loving my Savior who loved me first. He took, he took a Judas like me. He took a Judas like me and he turned me into a lover of God and a lover of his church in all of her messed up, jacked up ways. My prayer is that he would do the same work in all of us. Amen. To go to the Lord with me in prayer. Father, um, thank you for your word. And thank you for this church family and for the privilege that it is to be together today to hear from your word, to be challenged, to be encouraged, and to be drawn back to the foot of your cross, to be reminded of the power of the empty tomb. Please bring that to bear and work in our lives as we close in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.